Never before has a single piece of audio been so heavily focused on the topic of film criticism or a long-time syndicated show that millennials have since forgotten. That's the subject of this edition of Year 2000 Fix. The podcast stars Jordan, who is joined this time by his friend Miles, who over the years watched archived reviews of At The Movies with Siskel and Ebert, and in their childhood watched live on TV At The Movies with Ebert and Roper. The two have excellent chemistry. They brilliantly explain the link to At The Movies and Modern Film Critics. I give this edition a thumbs up, and that's something I would hope Roger Ebert would say if he were still with us and reviewing my podcast. Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and this is Year 2000 Fix, the podcast that covers news, pop culture, and trends of the 21st century. Now that I'm no longer imitating Roger Ebert, the late great Chicago Sun-Times film critic, and the longtime co-host of At The Movies, I thought I should explain a few things before you hear me talk with my very good friend, Miles. At The Movies was a syndicated program that debuted in the mid-80s with critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. The two would take turns describing the plot of a movie coming out soon to theaters and then would converse with one another about whether the film deserved a thumbs up or a thumbs down. This format would continue even after the passing of Gene Siskel, who was eventually replaced by Richard Roper. Richard Roper co-hosted the show with Ebert from 2000 through 2006. You will actually hear Miles and I compare the stylings of Siskel and Ebert to that of Ebert and Roper. You'll also hear us discuss Roger Ebert's career highlights of the 2000s his show's influence on today's critics, and the state of film criticism as a whole. We also heavily recommend you see the 2014 documentary about Ebert's life called Life Itself. I hope you give this podcast a thumbs up, or perhaps two thumbs up, because either way, I'm going to give you your year 2000 fix. And let's welcome Miles. Miles, what do you think your earliest memory of Roger Ebert, the at the movies, that kind of format was? I think my earliest memory, Jordan, would have to be his back and forths with Roper, just flipping around when I was maybe 12, 11 years old. We had just moved out to California and I would sit anxiously watching uh, some of his reviews and literally I didn't know anything about movies I just wanted him to say two thumbs up and them to disagree a little bit I do not remember any specific reviews any specific things he talked about I just remember the thumb system and the music too I think anyone's first foray into this guy and this method of criticism may have gone as far back as the movie poster or an advertisement. And the first thing you see is two thumbs up and it says Ebert and Roper. And the funny thing I wanted to point out is that when the show at the movies was at its best was when it was Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. But as it so happened, Gene Siskel died in 1999 tragically of a brain tumor that left us to see Roger Ebert lead the show and by that point after swapping a few different guest critics he picked his Chicago Sun-Times colleague Richard Roper to take the spot as his co-host and there was some flack from the outside community because technically Roper wasn't even a film critic he was an entertainment reporter you would only really know Gene Siskel and the original style of reviews, Siskel and Ebert, if you go on YouTube, look up their old stuff. 
what do you kind of notice the dynamic between Siskel and Ebert versus what we were seeing for a few years, Ebert and Roper? Yeah, I think looking up, say, a review from the 90s, let's say the Shawshank Redemption was one I found. And I think what's striking that's different from at the movies with Siskel and Ebert and at the movies with Ebert and Roper is that it just feels a little bit more natural in its presentation. And I think the way they riff off each other just feels kind of like a podcast well when i'm laughing i'm not thinking it's late i'm laughing and i think on the judgment of this being a comedy i laughed it's good enough recommendation uh i laughed it's not good enough thumbs down but if you happen to go on gene's recommendation you'll probably laugh loud a couple times so how's that for uh well at least you're wrong now on two films that's all let's keep going trying to keep my record intact we're doing a podcast but it feels very like they've got time to let their ideas develop which is very rare because of course they didn't they were under strict network time but it just felt like you were hanging out with them and it had a really organic quality Ebert and Roper, I'm higher on Roper than you are, I think. I thought he replicated the repartee decently well. I just thought that he really was trying to establish himself at that point as a voice. And I think it would be really hard for anyone to live up to that dynamic. And so it was a little more stilted, is what I'm saying. I can't believe you're not recommending this. There's so much going on here that it's never tired. It's never dragging. All these different characters. Michael Caine is hilarious. I can't believe you're not recommending this. The first five minutes alone have so many laughs. How did you feel like comparing the two? I'm interested. Your view is completely understandable. And to be clear, I don't hate Richard Roper. I think even if his background wasn't 100% in film criticism, and you have to remember, Roger Ebert was a guy who was a longtime journalist since he was a teenager, was at the forefront of several civil rights issues. Miles and I watched the very moving documentary on Roger Ebert called Life Itself. But the point is, is he had very big shoes to fill and that was never going to be an easy task and especially when Gene Siskel was able to do that back in the days when he had that awful mustache do you remember that part when they show them on TV that shocked me I was like wow they would never let anyone with that combination of facial hair and weird shirt combinations before they perspected the sweater hooks that were trademarked before Siskel Ebert and Ebert and Roper they would never Never let that pass. That was remarkable to watch that. I was cackling. Yeah, and they only did for a few years back in the, what would it have been, the late 70s. It's the early 80s their TV show starts where the the idea was you get the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert, their film critic, talking against the Chicago Tribune's film critic, Gene Siskel. But sticking on point, Richard Roper had a very overwhelming task to step in and replace Gene Siskel and have people react the same way they did back when the show was at its highest. So having said that, I think that Richard Roper, not a bad film critic, he had some really good insights and was able to succinctly summarize films and give some nuanced opinions afterwards. And I trusted him when he said, thumbs up, thumbs down. But I actually saw a YouTube commenter who said exactly what I was thinking. Just for research for this episode, I watch old reviews just so I can have a good opinion comparing the two. And it's like Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, it's like two esteemed colleagues bouncing off each other 
other. Whereas Ebert and Roper, it's like a father and son. And I almost feel like with Richard Roper, he says some good points. I like it when they agree with each other, but the argument, it seems too weak and it almost seems like he's trying too hard. Thumbs down for me. I hated this movie, I think in a way that you can only hate movies made by really talented people who have a lot of skill and it just got under my skin and drove me nuts with these endless shots of this guy. Yeah, when you put it like that, I think I agree with that. Yeah, I think Roger Ebert, like you said, with his Pulitzer Prize and his just general comfortability with the format and the medium, he brings an air of knowledge about the film industry. And you just wouldn't expect from someone younger than him, like Roper. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why Siskel and Ebert match, because they're, like you said, they're rivals. They started off, and we can get into this, not as friends, they're rivals. And that showed itself on screen, of course. And you didn't got that sense of respect from Roper when he was with him. I think there was some hesitancy and there would be if I was in his situation to directly go at Ebert like we saw in the documentary that Cisco did in numerous occasions because this figure is like a god basically in movie criticism yeah and ebert's words in print even had this lasting impression on you i mean i can still remember key paragraphs of his almost famous review from the year 2000 i had looked at it for research in doing my big season one finale on 2000s movies the line that really stood out is Roger Ebert is so moved by the nostalgia, the pure character that he says, I am hugging myself. I really liked his review of 2002's adaptation. And he points out just like how creative and like what the movie is saying about our own evolution, and what metaphors we can draw from screenwriting and orchids to like our own life that I really, I hadn't necessarily thought about, even though this is a movie I've seen on multiple occasions. Yeah, an interesting part of it was just seeing his involvement with screenplays. No um, sort of inkling that he was even involved in the nitty gritty of Hollywood when I was 10 or 11. But of course, it makes sense. And what's incredible about someone like Ebert is he developed all of these connections. And he still was able to cut through with that authenticity. He wasn't afraid to criticize his friends in the movie industry. He wasn't afraid to criticize someone like Martin Scorsese and say, oh, your movie was terrible. I'm disappointed to his face. And he had this type of delivery and authenticity with his style of reviews in print that translated really well to TV eventually, by the way. But I think that people really respected it. I'm sure he's had instances where people scoff at him, but for the most part, I think people in the movie industry respected him as this cultural icon. And there's always that question, what do you do when you have these conflicts of interest? For a guy who was as immersed in the film industry, who was on a TV show licensed by Disney and syndicated across the country, he was not afraid to pull some pretty hard punches against figures in the entertainment industry. This is a good example. The the MPAA, the Motion Ratings Movie Board, he had lots to say about them, and he was appalled that they would give like an R rating to 2002's Bowling for Columbine, that's the Michael Moore documentary, because he's like, hey, we're coming out of like 
9-11, this movie is made in response to a school shooting. This is made for teenagers who aren't being heard, and the MPAA has the nerve to give this an R rating. And he had similar views towards movies like School of Rock, which were like rated PG-13, where he's like, no, you can make this movie more inclusive, and you don't need arbitrary ratings to shut people out. And if you know how tied to the studios the MPAA was, especially in the 2000s, you see why comments by the most powerful film critic in the nation are pretty strong. Yeah, I think both he and Cisco, by the way, had that, I think, that sort of gravity and they had that respect. And I think that respect is so difficult to garner in any industry. And as a millennial, I think a lot of people in our age, basically, are still grappling with that. From that standpoint, I think it was really powerful. This is one of my favorite anecdotes about him and his reviewing career of the 2000s. Do you remember the Rob Schneider film? It was a sequel called Deuce Bigelow, European Gigolo. And maybe you know where I'm going with this one. Yes, I have not seen that legendary review. I have only heard tales, so please. So thankfully, Roger Ebert has like 99% of his intellectual property saved on his website. And that's where you just have to Google the Deuce Bigelow European Gigolo review to get to the story that Miles and I are about to recount. Full disclosure, I have not seen the 1999 film Deuce Bigelow. I haven't seen its 2005 sequel. I have no intention to. Here's what happened is he gives like a very terse description of the film's plot. But he spends more time of his review pointing out that Rob Schneider got really angry when early January 2005, Patrick Goldstein of the LA Times listing the best films of 2004 that would be nominated for Academy Awards. And he made a comment about how Deuce Bigelow was overlooked by the Oscars because there wasn't a category for best running penis joke delivered by a third rate comic. Rob Schneider, in response, publishes full-page ads in the trade magazines, Variety and Hollywood Reporter, to basically say that, like, you know, I did research on you, and you haven't won any awards, and, like, people, if they met me, they'd say, I'm a nice guy, but you'd get your ass beat if, like, they ever met you, and you haven't won a Pulitzer Prize because they haven't invented a category for best third-rate unfunny pompous reporter who's never been acknowledged by his peers. And so, first of all, Roger Ebert points out, like, okay, Schneider can dish it out, but he can't take it because Patrick Goldstein has won several awards. And knowing that, I kind of feel, wow, what a secure guy that he doesn't feel the need to go, hey, Rob Schneider, by the way, I've actually won these awards, so you're wrong. He gets Roger Ebert to do that for him. But he just ends his review by saying, but Schneider is correct, and Patrick Goldstein has not yet won a Pulitzer Prize. Therefore, Goldstein is not qualified to complain that Columbia, he means Columbia Pictures, the studio that financed Deuce Bigelow, European Gigolo, while passing on the opportunity to participate in Million Dollar Baby, Ray the Aviator Sideways in Finding Neverland. As chance would have it, I have won the Pulitzer Prize, and so I am qualified. Speaking in my official capacity as Pulitzer Prize winner, Mr. Schneider, your movie sucks. And your movie sucks would be the title of a collection of his worst reviews. 
incredible. I just love the inside baseball that is happening that I think a lot of people associate with Hollywood as just this specter of dirtiness that happens. And I'm thinking specifically, we're recording this, the nomination season has started. The Golden Globes had their nominations, I guess, last week. And so this sort of discussion is just great how these critics are interacting with the stars and how how that could influence a body as shadowy as the Hollywood press. There's something special about the fact that Ebert wasn't an L.A. native. And if you remember in the documentary, they mentioned how part of the challenge in syndicating the original incarnation of At The Movies was that Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel were two guys from Chicago and they didn't have as much appeal in New York or L.A. New York felt like for their markets, we want professional film critics. And then in California, they're like, well, they better be Hollywood looking people. And eventually, Siskel and Ebert won over those two markets, and that's how they came to be, and then of course eventually Ebert and Roper. But that's how you get a kind of non-Hollywood perspective on Hollywood. Yeah, and that's definitely unique. It dovetails nicely with his writing style. He's like an everyday film critic who you can connect to. He uses the first person when he's writing reviews, and... (laughs) Trust me, as someone back in grad school, that's not always the case, right? We see a lot of distance between writers and their subjects. You didn't feel that with Roger Ebert. And I think he made a very smart decision not to move the show to New York or Los Angeles. It was a nice sort of everyman position he had going on in his location in Chicago. Sadly, it was not meant to last forever. As mixed as the reception may have been to the Ebert and Roper partnership, we can agree for the most part, it had enough to keep people watching the At The Movies show. But the last episode the two reviewed together aired in 2006, and the five movies they went over for that episode were Curious George. Do you remember that was the one with Jack Johnson music in the background that you couldn't get out of your head? Wow, how can you even remember that? I do not remember that gem. Upside down, you're not already singing that. Mind you, I was never a fan, but it was just so closely tied to the trailer. Hard Candy was another film that opened April 28th, 2006. I don't remember it. I do remember X-Men The Last Stand, which, oh my god, they both gave it. Thumbs up. And again, I really want to emphasize, we are talking about X-Men The Last Stand. My mouth is still open, by the way. Man, that was just such a colossal disappointment to go from X2 to whatever it was we saw. They have that awful scene with Juggernaut and, like, Magneto just, like, chills in the park after being cured of his mutant. And I was so pissed they kill off Cyclops in, like, the first 20 minutes. Yes! Who was in that? Oh, it was Elliot Page was in that? Right. I forget the character's name. Pride, right? Kitty Pride. I think so. And then, like, that's the scene Elliot's in with, I'm the Juggernaut, bitch. Yes, where Magneto moves the Golden Gate Bridge. Right, okay, that stands out. And I'm pretty sure that influenced Roger Ebert and Richard Roper's review. Oh, geez, yeah. Hollywood loves stuff on the Golden Gate Bridge. And they both strangely liked the film A Prairie Home Companion. 
I actually should watch my mouth here. I'm, I'm talking to a guy from Minnesota. <laughs> hey, just to be clear, I'm not defending anything Garrison Keillor did. Nor am I, jeez. But yes, he was at one time Minnesota royalty for sure. <laughs> I know so much about that show because every Sunday, like, we drive to see my grandparents and my mom and dad would play NPR and they'd have the Saturday night show re-airing Sunday morning. And I'd hear that voice, all those weird characters, the lines about, like, woebegone. And so with that much fandom in mind, I remember my parents seeing it. And even though the film's directed by Robert Altman, one of my favorite directors, uh, they're like, eh. <laughs> yeah. It was something, something. But Ebert and Roper liked it. And the description, you can look up, like last episode of At The Movies with Roger Ebert. This guy in his description pretty much does my job for me. So I'll link to the show notes to properly credit him or her. I actually don't know. But this description says, In June 2006, Roger Ebert underwent surgery to have a cancerous tissue near his right jaw removed. As a result of his hospitalization, he was unable to speak and he was kept off the air. And that I do remember between 2006 to 2008 when Richard Roper was still on the show, they had all these guest critics fill in. I remember Jay Leno was actually one of them. I think they both liked Talladega Nights. But what it did to the At The Movies program, or at least for Roger Ebert, was it meant he was off the air, he was unable to speak, but he continued submitting reviews to Chicago Sun-Times. And that's actually something I really liked, which is knowing that however much Ebert's health Suffered. He still stuck through it to type up his reviews, and it was great to see movies I was watching as a teenager. Roger Ebert still had something to say about it. In early 2008, Roger Ebert underwent surgery, hoping to restore his voice. Procedure was not successful. By then, he ended his association with the show in mid-2008, after the producers decided they wanted to take the show in a new direction. So, the thing is, is that the two thumbs up, it was a patented phrase by Roger Ebert at the movies. Gene Siskel's widow was the other person who had the two thumbs up patent. They were able to make some good money, and that's how we grew up knowing that hey, this movie's good. It has two thumbs up. Yeah, and it was even more than that for people who maybe didn't listen to this podcast who didn't have the pleasure or privilege to go to a video store and pick out a DVD. A marker of when uh, my sisters and I were figuring out what to watch, they would always have the two thumbs up on the DVD. Of course, now that's in trailers, maybe on some movie descriptions, but it's not the same as seeing it on the back of the video or DVD or Blu-ray yeah. you want to see. So that phrase, I think, two thumbs up, really brings back the nostalgia for me. I guess its legacy is go through a selection of 80s and 90s movies where you can find that phrase. It's all subjective, really. I just think there was something a little more organic when it was Siskel and Ebert saying it. But again, I, I don't hold too much against Richard Roper. By 2011, Roger Ebert's lower jaw had to be removed. During all this time, Ebert still continued to submit reviews to the Sun-Times until his death on April 4th, 2013. He was 70. Incredible passion. He was so important that even President Obama is giving a eulogy. If you ever have time to watch the documentary, the listener is out there. By the way, don't watch The Life Itself with uh, Oscar Isaac. That is a... Uh... 
Yeah, if you're searching the movie, don't get confused. That That is definitely not two thumbs up. I'll just say that. Right, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who listens to this and goes like, okay, fine, I'll watch the movie. But there's a very, very funny anecdote about Siskel and Ebert's rivalry where they were on a plane and a prank Gene Siskel pulled. But I'll say no more. Yes, that is a funny part. Nice teasing. We've definitely earned a check for the marketing team for uh, Life Itself. I'm sure we are doing them a service. Yeah, you notice how in trailers and things you see in marketing materials now, like, first of all, no one really cares what critic is saying this is the greatest of all time like there's no name recognition and at most you made me laugh one time when it was 2014 you're like this movie it has a really great review it got four stars on rogerebert.com yes that's what we're left with and to be fair he's built a great infrastructure for that website and you know part of it too is for people our age Ron Tomatoes into high school and middle school was a huge thing. Oh, should I see this movie? What's the Ron Tomato score? That'll determine if I am going to this movie or not going to this movie. And that sounds foolish, but it was true. It was the ultimate barometer. And you could pull up Ron Tomatoes and Roger Ebert's review was there of the movie and that gave it an ultimate seal of approval if it had iron tomato score and roger ebert liked it i was like wow i cannot miss this movie what was your experience like with that in the late 90s early 2000s is when these sites came out rotten tomatoes metacritic they're developed by these zealous post-college students they seem to have a few things in common they love movies and they have some technical expertise and then it's a few years the site becomes popular they're sold to corporate partners rotten tomatoes specifically got sold to fandango and i think is technically owned like their parent company was comcast so i remember i think it was my grandpa who showed me hey there's this site where they compile and give scores by aggregating reviews to movies and that determines whether or not you see the movie and i'm sure we all have experiences of rotten tomatoes gave it this score and you're like that movie was shit what were they thinking and meanwhile my brother and i love the 2015 reboot sequel vacation with ed helms and we were so mad that it got like only 22 percent in the mid 2010s there was all this talk about our rotten tomatoes campaigns ruining the box office performance of films 2017 movies like Baywatch and the Emoji movies the studios blame Rotten Tomatoes but then what's funny is a year or so later on The Ringer they're like yeah they said that in 2017 but these studies prove that they're mixing up their correlations in 2018 the box office performances of films totally shot up or like made up for the difference that was like made up for whatever was lacking in 2017 the result that they noted in this Ringer article was because of streaming, because the theatrical experience has been almost obliterated. Don't get me wrong, I really hope we do get back to the day we can go to movie theaters. It's just the state of things right now where it doesn't really matter as much of what critics are saying about it or what the percentage of a movie is. It's like people really value audience scores. That's how you get stories of like people trying to bomb the user review scores of like The Last Jedi or Captain Marvel. To the point where Rotten Tomatoes actually had to do something about it. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I feel like definitely Rotten Tomatoes had a golden age. And I think I remember that Ringer article 
It was either uh, from Sean Fennessy, who I know detests it on a ringer film critic, or Andrew Gadadaro. They're definitely against it, and it definitely, I think, is a precursor to film Twitter and another evolution of film criticism on the internet. But again, going back to Ebert, it's another signal of democratizing film criticism. I think we would still have arrived at a place similar to this, but I think without Roger Ebert and at the movies, we have a certain type of rating system, how we rate things. We have the star metric is forever ingrained. And the thumb metric, I feel like, is a little out of date. But I think still his influence on just talking about movies, it really accelerated this online movement where you have user scores being so influential, like you talked about, like The Last Jedi and them trying to tank it. And even this year with, I could feel his influence with something like the response to Wonder Woman 1984, right? When people on film Twitter were just immediately rejected it after widespread critic approval upon early release. And I think a lot of those roots sort of grow out of Roger Ebert and his Pulitzer legacy, think genuinely you can see his footprints on this. And you know, even later in life, Roger Ebert was on Twitter and was a huge part of his legacy. Definitely in that he couldn't speak to us with that trademark voice physically or auditorially, but he could on Twitter. And that proved to be just as influential. I listened to a TED talk with him, which you can also look up on YouTube. And he is just really extolling the virtues of technology and social media wholeheartedly back in 2011 because the way it transformed his livelihood and made his words influential up until his his death. It's funny that I've seen so many criticisms of sites like Rotten Tomatoes is it forces critics to say the film was either good or bad without any nuance to it. And that might be a valid criticism of when you're reading those kind of online aggregate reviews. But the thing is people said as much about Roger Ebert and at the movies when it's like, oh, it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. And I think even Ebert said people are smart enough to parse through the details to understand not every movie is made for everyone to know what their general impression was because I know sometimes he says thumbs down to movies where it's like okay it's not terrible or on the same scale as never see this movie but he's just like it's flawed so I need to point that out and thumbs up means yes this film really exceeded these merits but they're not the same merits as he goes over what he liked about a film i wonder how he would respond to just these never-ending menus of movies like how would he handle the pandemic what would he review what would he respond to because i think crucially he would love to find you know those uh needle in the haystack movies the movies that you might not have heard of but now everyone has access to those i feel like there's a huge breadth of movies that are instantly available to all of us. We don't have to pay a ticket. If you subscribe to a service, you're going to see that on your menu and it's going to be instantly available to you. So it'd be interesting if he were still with us today, how he would approach those reviews and what he would say to those people who say, oh, okay, he gave it two thumbs up. I better watch this on a Friday night on Netflix because Roger Ebert said so. 
I think he may have joined the choruses of people like, say, Christopher Nolan, who really value the experience of being in a movie theater. I think while I do really love the conveniences of streaming and everything we have to do out of necessity for entertainment in the pandemic, I also feel like I really don't want the movie theater experience to go away. And I do almost side with Christopher Nolan when he's like, there's another word for a film that goes straight to Netflix, direct to DVD, like kind of that kind of degradation of quality. And I think Ebert would have felt the same if he, like, was able to hear people say now, like, oh yeah, no film-going experiences are gonna be archaic, extinct by the time we're, like, 10, 20 years older. I hope that's not true. I am not vowing for that to happen. I'm just saying. Definitely miss that. That sense of community you get in a theater with people. I remember when I went to Star Wars The Force Awakens. Those of you who've listened to the podcast may know my feelings on the Star Wars movies, but the Star Wars Force Awakens and just seeing those people, uh, I watched it on opening night, and going to the theater and seeing the parents with their kids and the opening title screen, of course. And everyone's screaming and wooting. Or the kids are saying, what's that, Dad? And they're like, this is the opening to Star yeah. Wars. You're in for something. And I miss those, like, murmurs or something as trivial as you're watching Avengers Endgame and uh, there's the final battle ensues. And that huge moment and the goosebumps you get when watching that, I think, ah, yeah, I just totally miss that. And I think that was part of the documentary too, is just missing that camaraderie, seeing all those people together. Because of course, this movie was made in 2014. I not only felt like it was from just, I think more than 10 years ago, honestly, you know, what is time now? But I definitely felt super foreign and weird to see a huge movie flex filled with people and I certainly hope we go back to that. And it'd be interesting if the movie industry, how it adapts to, you know, this stark change in business model that's been forced upon us and how that, I guess, changes stuff. The irony is that while many people thought in the pandemic, and they had good reason to, that the movie theater business would be completely dead because you see all the losses AMC and the other well-known theater chains have to take right now or what they're doing to stay relevant. But the irony, I think, is that all this time being away from the theater may actually save it because if there's a day we're all vaccinated and people can safely do that again, it might be like, oh, thank God, I don't have to be stuck in my house, like watching something and as for what it does for critics you might still want the opinions of people you revere like roger ebert to tell you whether something is worth seeing in the way that we did long ago yeah i feel like now it's like every man for himself like i still value critics like mark lasalle mick lasalle oh mick lasalle and peter travers of course yeah, I like Peter Travers. I still value those voices, but it was never a touchstone like Roger Ebert was. And worth noting that while people talk a lot about 
the lack of diversity in film criticism, you kind of pondered what would Roger Ebert think right now? I think he would be pretty vocal about like why there needs to be an increase in women critics and people of color reviewing movies and he'd understand the impact of like, well, it's important to have like not just one type of voice reviewing movies because the types of people who review movies, that generates buzz, that generates press, that generates like box office dollars. So that definitely determines what kind of movies we're even seeing in the first place. So, I mean, the good news is that there are numbers increasing. There's like Rotten Tomatoes took initiatives to make their top critics and the types of critics they admit on the site more inclusive. So we'll pay attention, see if we see some better numbers. That... AMC's coming back, so that's good. Yeah, no, I think if you follow all the weird financial news right now, yes, AMC... It's probably being saved one way or another. And it's funny, you did mention Mick LaSalle, who is my favorite critic. And I did want to bring him up because in 2016, when I was a junior at USF, I was very privileged to have him come speak to my class because he was an old colleague of my professor. And he brings up the big elephant in the room when it comes to film criticism. You probably shouldn't be a film critic in the first place. My professor, oh, he was such a great guy, and I'll share this with him because I hope he listens to this. His name's Professor Robertson. He ended this big discussion, which was pretty much like an hour and a half of this guy comes to our class, and we ask him questions about reviews. And the reason was because this was an arts reporting and reviewing class, and this week we were going to learn how to review a movie, and he thought, why not introduce you to a real movie critic? Professor Robertson, he ended this whole discussion by saying, now it's time for my money question. And Mick says, sure. So Professor Robertson, he asked the Honorable Mick LaSalle, so say a young person wants to be a movie reviewer, what advice do you give? And Mick LaSalle said, don't do it. Really, don't do it. And the class started laughing. And he, he was very serious. He's like, no, because it's horrid. Think of it this way. It's just as hard to be a filmmaker as it is to be a film critic. And if you're lucky to make it as a film critic, you'll make millions. If you become a top movie critic, maybe you'll make $100,000. You have to be way luckier than that, though, he says. Or you have to be someone who has enough credibility to be on TV. Because he's like, TV pays better. And so he's like, if you want to be a film critic, if you want to watch movies and write reviews, I say this. Number one, make a movie. You may have a gift for story. You might know it. You might not. You may not be that kind of person or don't want to make one. His point was, it's all about what kind of personality you bring to a project. His number two advice, TV pays really well, and TV's not going anywhere. Guess that's debatable, but the point is people are always watching something. And then he's like, look, if you want to be more of a scholar and have that approach, take a cinema scholars class, become an academic, teach at a university level, teach at NYU, get a PhD. And sure enough, I see all the time the trade magazines, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, they're always quoting these people from UCLA and USC. Also, what you could do is try getting a book published. He really, he went to town on this issue because his point is, these days, because of budget cuts at different institutions, critics are being fired left and right. There's only like one critic per paper or per organization, and you're at most going to make like $20,000 to $25,000. At this point, most of the work is freelance. He likens it to like, you're just going to become a person at a computer with roaches walking among it. 
and then it's like you could do so many other things this is the quote i really want people to take away you can piece together a situation where you make $30,000 a year. And he says that's a big maybe. $30,000 a year is great when you're 20. Maybe. It's not even that great, but it's something when you're in your 20s. But when you're 32, you just wasted 10 years doing something that didn't make you much money instead of something that would have made you a lot more and that you would have liked a lot more the thing that really haunts me is he's like if you're 35 years old and you have money you're young if you're 35 years old and broke you're old it's so sad but it's true he says and then he's like in your late 20s is when the balloon pops <laughs> ah so you're saying that his thesis was if you could dream it you could do it <laughs> that is uh one way of looking at it i mean it's not too dissimilar <laughs> That's quite the life advice. Just laying out the oppressive nature of capitalism right there. Yeah. And capitalism, I guess, definitely dictated where people go to film reviewers. And when I told people in college, like, oh, like, I read this review from my favorite film critic, or I'm about to meet my favorite film critic. They're like, you have a favorite film critic? That sounds like such an outdated process to them. And I guess it just kind of showed the fragmentation of how people get their information about movies and especially how the internet changed it, how journalism changed. And I just want to say to anyone who felt really discouraged by all that, remember, anyone who's going to tell you this thing is so bad, don't do it. Anyone who really wants to do it won't let that discourage them. Yes, I like that. And I will say, too, that we can see in even that talk how tectonic his advice was when he said, oh, yeah, get on TV. TV is where you want to be. Well, not really exactly true, right? We have, I think, a lot of people from our generation have not touched the cable box. They're fully on Hulu, uh, Netflix, Apple TV, Disney Plus, insert streaming service here, you know. But I think we've seen a lot of movie journalists transition to podcasts, actually, such as David Sims, the Blank Check podcast, Sean Fennessy, the Big Picture podcast, even something like Spill.com, which I watched back in the day, which has now become double toasted with Corey Coleman and a bunch of reviewers of color. That's really great. That's on YouTube. Something like Chris Duckman's reviews, where we can see some of Mick LaSalle's advice there. A lot of those people who I mentioned were involved in the movie industry at least tangentially but you see the type of grind they have to uh undertake not only with writing articles on multiple social media platforms but doing multiple podcasts and I think YouTube has proved to be a great place for an endless sea of just straight up movie reviews. I know that's what the Red Letter Media guys do. And I know you're not a fan of Mr. Plinkett or any of that stuff. But I really enjoy the very thoughtful analysis done by, say, a Lindsay Ellis or Jenny Nicholson or the guy who does Cosmo Not Variety Hour or Sideways, which is a channel that specifically reviews film scores. And he recently did two really good videos on Cats, the 2019 Atrocity and 2020's Mulan remake. Oh, I would love to watch that. <laughs> As you say tectonic, the other thing that really changed is the fact that user reviews became the new norm, especially after so many people grew alienated from Rotten Tomatoes. And there's even a podcast I recommend called Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong, a podcast by the Rotten Tomatoes site editors. 
That's amazing. Actually, you know what always stands out to me, especially as I read criticism of the site, which I should point out, I don't hold too much against, even if I think the criticisms are valid. But I saw at the comedy store a slew of comedians, and one of them was Dane Cook. And I didn't think he was that bad. I mean, I laughed a little bit, even if I'm not really a fan of his stuff. But one line that really stuck out to me is he's talking about an experience he had while making the movie Good Luck Chuck that came out in 2007. It it was a movie that famously, I think it was the lowest of the year on Rotten Tomatoes, 3%. And as he's saying, good luck, Chuck. Yeah, this happened on the set. And that thought is in my head. And almost as if he read everyone's mind, he's like, yeah, fuck Rotten Tomatoes. That shit bought me a house. Oh my God. Yeah, but it, it's just really convenient, that sort of stuff, as this barometer for what we should like. And I think you're right that Ebert would have pushed back on this sort of force feeding, sort of eroding our sense of agency. Like, what do I really like as a person? Like, instead of, oh, what does Ron Tomatoes say? What do these people on YouTube yeah. say? What do these people on film Twitter say? And that's really eroding my sense of what I thought of the movie. For instance, I think if I would have been on Twitter when I saw The Last Jedi and liked it, <laughs> I would have had a totally different view just upon reading those artificially deflated Rotten Tomatoes user reviews or the film Twitter discourse. Authenticity is something definitely that's on a new frontier in the social media era. And I think especially with TikTok and all these new forms of social media, it's going to be interesting just to see like how that question of authenticity and personal artistry, creativity in criticism sort of manifests itself. Yeah, and as long as people have a voice, have their opinions, and as long as they have thoughts on things that entertain them, we can always be certain that reviews are in our midst, that people will always find a way to broadcast their views, and we're gonna have our own opinions that form as a result, but then we also look back at the man who started it all. Life is precious, life is short, and the idiots who made this film are taking two hours of my life and robbing it from me in order to give me less than nothing. Thank you so much to Miles for being this week's co-host. I hope we do some more podcasts soon. Coming up next week is probably one of my very favorite projects I've put together. You'll have to wait till then. Message me on my Anchor profile. Follow Year 2000 Fix on Instagram, and I'll catch you next time. Uh -huh.